Hey everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. I'm Michael. Jacob's on the other side. Jacob, what are we discussing today? We are discussing five movies from 1996. We added yes. one. We added another episode or two because I feel like there was still some more to cover. I let Jacob choose these. I'm on board with some of them. <laughs> yeah. I think nostalgia maybe blinded you on a couple of them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's okay. I'm I'm drunk on the fake Slurpee right now, so go ahead. Okay, uh, well, just to get these ones out of the way, because these were these two were the worst of the bunch. Well, I'll start off with the first one. Um, I want to start this off with the solo with Mario Van Peebles. I mean, this is definitely riding on the high of you know something like Terminator Two, Universal Soldier for sure. Oh yeah, but again, this just. You can tell in the budget where it's gone. Oh, yeah. It, I looked, and it said it was like $12 million. No, no, no. I think it said it was like $19 million. And there's no way in fucking hell that was a $19 million budget. I'm guessing six, maybe eight. Mario Van Peebles was a name, I guess, at the time. But I can't see him you know, commanding more than a million dollars for his role. He wasn't that big. And this is after a few flops. And, I mean, what else you got? You got it is shot in, like, Guatemala or whatever. Mexico, maybe. I, uh, you know what? I bet you it is shot in Mexico because it's got the kid from Desperado. Oh, I know. I thought that kid looked familiar. I'm like, wait a second. Yeah, there's oh. no there's no real digital effects. Everything is very low-level practical effects, and it's just, you know, explosions, which are cheap. But watch the A-Team. There's lots of explosions on a TV budget. I, I remember liking this. We're not thinking it was great, but it was a good C-level movie. Uh, people love to say movies are either A, B, or Z. I don't. I never think like that. I usually think that they're and the A-list movies are the ones with the big budgets to get the promotion, whatever. B movies used to be because they were the second build at a drive-in. I kind of think of those like, hey, they offered it to this guy and this director, they turned it down, then we went down a level, you know, instead of like uh, um, Gary Oldman, they got Kevin Bacon or, or something like that. You know what I mean? Right. And, no, I know what you mean. And then there's the C-level movies, usually the smaller independent movies that has some sort of sell. It's usually a genre film or some sort of thing that's really popular at that time. It's like, you know, exploitation films. And it usually has a right. number two that either they're past their prime or they're just on the edge of, well, they go up or down, you know, like Mario Van Peebles. And, and then there's the Z-grade, which is usually just, you know, shit that they just threw out on video, you know? Exactly. It's like, why did this movie even get made? Yeah, so I, I can see why Solo was made. It was from a company called Triumph. And Triumph, like so many companies that for some reason Sony keeps putting out there, like Destination, Stage 6, and uh, Screen Gems, it was their lower budget division. Stuff that was not a too... They would make most of their money back on video or in cable. They were never really meant to be big hits. And it was just dumped at the very tail end of summer when people stopped going to movies, which is confusing to me why Blue Beetle is coming out next week which is usually the week where they throw out movies to die <laughs> so yeah it's kind of weird oddly enough but hey you know I mean so pro well as far as it goes for this year yeah it's Barbie that's taking a storm still <laughs> but as far as this movie goes um yeah again uh, him just like being completely robotic I'm like okay really not that hard to do I mean, it's not like he was uh, Peter Weller who actually like put effort, in, you know, it, like 
trained to become a robot or anything Yeah, like it's that. weird. I looked it. I looked into the behind the scenes on this, and Mario Van Peebles um, took the role because he said it would be an acting challenge. That it would give him a lot of depth to work with. And I was like, no, not really. I think they like, just paid you, your, they paid you your asking price, and that was it. <laughs> Exactly. I know, for real. It's like, wait, what exact depth? I'm like, you're a robot. You show no emotion. Yeah. Um, but I will say this. Adrian Brody, baby Brody here, um, given a really good performance. And what, it was probably like 20 year? Yeah. No, he was definitely young. And William Sadler, a, a good go-to yeah. character actor doing a dual role here. Spoilers, sorry. As a robot and then his army version or whatever. And if you look up, Oh, damn it. We talked about the show. Uh, it was a Mike Grell comic book that got turned to a TV show with Rene Russo. Max. No, you're, you're kind of in that realm, though. Fucking... I had it in my head. But, oh. um... Here, here, I'm just going to do it. You stall. You keep talking about Solo. I like this up. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, as far as, like, some of the action goes, again... Some of it, it was, like, your typical go-to. And then, of course, you know, as far as, uh... Mario Van Peebles was like acting again. Yeah, he was just a robot. He just decided to not, to, you know, make the opposite decisions of his commands because some of them did involve blowing up, you know, civilians working on an airstrip. Yeah. And of course, nobody likes that. Bill Sadler has to go in and hunt him down. That's how the plot works out. And of course, villagers kind of get in the way. Oh yeah, but Bill Sadler, I'll, I'll give him credit. Like he definitely played a good villain. You know what's really funny is. This has a very similar plot to the movie we talked about just a little bit ago, uh, Men of War, except nowhere nearly as well done and complex. Oh, absolutely. And no robots. <laughs> no robots. Well, Dolph Lundgren's <laughs> acting was still a little stiff. But, um, no, if you, look up, if you look up John Sable, which was a comic book from Mike Grell, um, he has a, a kind of a, like a makeup costume camouflage thing on his face. Oh. It is very similar to what William Sadler does with his uh, camouflage. Um, in, oh, in solo. like those like spike stripes by his chin. Yeah, by yeah. His jaw. Yeah, no, like I said, that was pretty cool. Definitely give it. It definitely was something to like kind of make him stand out among all the commandos. Although he's tiny, he's pretty much. He pretty much exposes himself and he's actually trying to hide. Yeah. Um, I think we, there's not much to say about this one. It is, it's one of those movies, like, if it had just been a couple years later, I think it would have been straight to video. Once DVD started to explode. Yeah, no, definitely. This is a straight to video kind of movie. All right, what's next? Uh, had to get this one out of the way. Yeah, nostalgia, nostalgia did blind me because as a kid, you know, I like, I like goofy, stupid shit. Um, Spy Hard with Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> the best this part of this movie. The best part of this movie wasn't even directed by the dude in charge. It was directed by Weird Al. He completely did his own opening sequence, and it's fucking so amazing that it almost makes you forget <laughs> the rest of the movie. <laughs> but then you remember the rest of the movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. Again, yeah, a lot of goofs, a lot of uh, uh, like I said, a lot of nods to what was popular at the time, like Sister Act, uh, yeah, fiction. Well, it's mostly you know, like it's a it's mostly a spoof of action movies. I mean, the title's a parody of Die Hard. It's a spoof of James Bond, but it's got like stuff from True Lies and Speed in it and stuff like that. And the problem with this movie, I think, is that it's from the Friedbergs. Now, you don't know who the Friedbergs are. They're not really a household name, but if you look up their filmography, they're the ones who basically ruined spoof movies uh, over the last twenty years. Yes, they did. Yeah, they're the ones behind Epic Movie and Date Movie and all that. Yeah. And honestly, as far as like the credit for Scary Movie, no, that's 
the Wayans brothers. Yeah, that's they like just. The Wayans I, family. I'm sure they were just brought in to do some punch ups on the writing because they had a um, a contract with Disney, and you know Disney owned both studios. I remember <clears> this opened big. It opened it well. I mean, for uh, by this point, Leslie Nielsen's career has kind of been dipping down. And he only really had the first two Naked Gun movies as rock-solid successes. He had a lot of movies in between that bombed. And I just think oh. he... I don't know if he just didn't have good choices or he had a terrible agent or what it was. But once he knew he was funny is when his career sucked. Because he's funny because he doesn't know he's funny. That's why it works. And so I remember the, the trailers were good. And it opened at $10 million, and that seemed kind of like, oh, that's a positive. It only cost like $18 million or whatever. And then it just collapsed because everybody realized it was a flaming pile of shit. And it's all downhill from here. Then it's Mr. Magoo, it's wrongfully accused, and then just direct-to-video stuff after that. Now, he would have a few comebacks when it's only the Zucker brothers that seem to be able to harness his talents properly. Because they brought him back for, what, Scary Movie 3 and 4? And uh, yes. superhero movie, which I think is superhero movie, is a good one that no one ever talks about. Yeah, no, I, that one I actually didn't get a kick out of. But again, with this movie, oh geez, what else did they do? Uh, there was the well, Andy Griffith is very, just fucking lost. I like Andy Griffith. I think he's very funny in Rustler's Rhapsody, but here it's just like they give him nothing to work with. Yeah, he was hardly he was like he was the main villain. And he was hardly in the movie. It Char- seemed. Yeah, Charles Durning's embarrassing. Oh my god, climbing out of all those stupid outfits. Oh god, yeah, trying to hide from Barry Boswick. Yeah, oh, Barry Boswick. The whole time. Yeah, I think Barry Boswick's pretty funny in this. Barry Boswick knows how to do spoof properly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's putting on that whole Boston accent the whole time, <laughs> or sounding like a Kennedy. Yeah. The um, <laughs> they talk about in this that. Uh, the director was had the film taken away from him, and he said the more complex jokes were cut out to make it as mainstream and, and you know get kids to like it as much as possible. I don't know. The guy hasn't shown that he has complex talent if you look at his filmography. I, I'm not sure that's true, but whatever. I'll give him credit. A lot of studios do you know intervene and chop movies up, so I don't know what to say. Yeah, no, uh, I'm not sure what to say either. But there was one part I did find funny when uh, the whole little kid got the crap kicked out of him. <laughs> who? There was a there was a spoof to uh, like homage to Home Alone, who was like hiding the main scientist. Oh yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> like oh he instead of like beating up the criminals, he's the one who got the crap kicked out of him. Everything kind of like backfired on him. Yeah, Dennis uh, Mason Gamble, who played Dennis the Menace. Yeah, it's it's it, I, I think there was too many of these Home Alone spoofs around this time. It's so weird that they did this, though, because Home Alone is now six years old. I mean, even Part 2 was four years old. It just seems like it was a really old thing to reference. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for real, like, considering, yeah. All right, what is there? But, man, then there was also, uh, who else was in here? Nicolette Sheridan. Then there was... Marsha Gay Harden as well. Yeah, I just, I just, the whole the thing is embarrassing for all the women. I, they have nothing to work with whatsoever. Oh God, no! I thought it, Kelly it, LeBrock it, was in this. I was thoroughly convinced she was in this, but apparently she's in Wrongfully Accused, a movie I've only ever seen once. Yeah, I remember watching that as a kid, mainly because I grew up on Nicky Gunn movies and Leslie Nielsen's, you know, Airplane included. So yeah, I mean, it was interesting for me to like this, but my God, this is the this was, I felt, the longest hour and 20 minutes. It's so short. I, I, I'm I, going to tell you right now, 
40 minutes in, I stopped paying attention. I just started looking at my phone, and I looked up, oh, the movie's over, shit, okay. <laughs> but I will say, the music score, I definitely recognize. I'm like, wait a minute, this sounds like stuff from Masters of the Universe. I recognize those melodies. It's Bill Conti. Okay, yeah, Bill, Con- Bill Conti seems like a guy for a decade there. He got really good movies to do scores for, and then it just fell apart. I don't know why. He's a good composer. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I was like, hey, uh, again, yeah. Masters of the Universe may not have been a good movie, but fucking great, unforgettable score. No he kid. did Rocky. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh gosh, what else did well, he do? Well, Karate Kid. Oh yeah, that too. Oh, that was him. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, John uh, G. Allison hired him again. Tried to, he tried to replicate as much as he could from Rocky to make it a success, and guess what? He got it. Yeah. No, no, it's a shame. I wish he had gotten more work. Hmm. So... I think we're. I think we wrap this up right, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, let's go on to the next one. <laughs> Please. Okay, good. We're done. <laughs> okay, this one. This one was actually really funny. I remember seeing this uh, with my grandma uh, on VHS. They rented it. My fellow Americans with James Garner and uh, Jack Lemmon. Okay. So I know critics hated it. I know it bombed. I know they called it a, a carbon copy. You know, grumpy old men or whatever. I get it. The formula is there. The formula worked so well with the two grumpy old men. They took the same formula and brought it over here. But they got to tell you, the fucking chemistry between Jack Lemmon and James Gardner is so strong. I couldn't stop laughing. I absolutely love this movie, even though I see it for all its flaws. No, absolutely. Same here. Like, their jokes and all their little setups, like, again, I couldn't help but fucking just laugh my ass off. I'm like, damn, it's a shame this is bombed. If anything, it... If this movie was saved, it would have been because of those two. Yeah, it's just, well, I mean, they tried, they released it at Christmas, just like the last two Grumpy Old Men. They thought that was going to work. I don't know why it did. It got really bad reviews. It's from the director of Tommy Boy, and I think that he does a really good job with this. Um, It's just one of these things where, you know, the formula is, hey, we're going to have a bunch of insults when we Grumpy Old Guys that don't get along or whatever, but there's going to be these sensitive moments. The sensitive moments work. Jack Lemmon, they're both ex-presidents. If you haven't seen it, they're both ex-presidents. They both served four-year terms. And for whatever reason, they barely lost. And now uh, Jack Lemmon's vice president is president. And there's this whole conspiracy going on about them being set up for this whole money laundering conspiracy thing or whatever. And then they're set up. And they're they're basically trying to kill them. These little... um, group of secret service men within the secret service like this little cabal and they're trying to wipe out the two presidents and make them take the fall uh and so it's a road trip movie and road trip movies always fucking work for me they always do i love road trip movies because it's little vignettes if you get tired of this five minute ten minute thing or whatever you just wait and it'll go to the next five ten minute segment or whatever and i think almost all of them really work all those little vignettes there's not one that really just like you know you stumble over and, and they all line up later. They're all useful. Exactly. It does add some depth to and some realization to these characters of like what they what they've done during their presidency. Yeah. And the effect they had on people themselves. It's like, weird to see that. I mean, it's only going to be in a movie because they're never going to have that self-effacing reality in, in life. I don't care what party they are. They're never going to admit like, well, fuck, I just did that for the money. Or I did that just to get the votes. You know, they're never just going to say that. Look, I promised you this thing so I could get your vote, knowing full and well that it's probably never going to happen. And, you know, that's a really big part of James Garner's character. And then the other thing, Jake, Jack Lemon, he just misses being 
celebrated, to be honored, you know, whatever. And, and he doesn't want to be forgotten. So it seems crass at first that he's doing all these books, all these toys, all this merchandising. But he yes, does he it. wants money. <laughs> it, 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 there, there is that, but it's also the, the truth of it is that he agrees to it because he wants to stay visible. He doesn't want to be forgotten. And, yes, he doesn't want to fade away. Right. And, of course, there's other ways to do that. Jimmy Carter has shown you that you can stay <laughs> very much in the public image, but also doing really great things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, heck, that was even mentioned uh, with James Garner after he sleep with that um, uh, reporter. Yeah. And it's talking about, it's like, yeah, I could, maybe in a few years, but not right now. The, um... So, yeah, it's loaded to the gills with, like, that guy kind of people. Of course, you have Dan Aykroyd. Uh, you have... Who's the guy from West Wing? He, he's in everything. He was in uh, um, uh, Get Out. Um, oh, damn it. He was the bad guy in... Uh, Bradley Whitford. Thank you, Bradley Whitford, because like, he was in uh, Revenge of the Nerds, too, I was going to say. Um, and then you have Everett McGill, who's just one of those great villains. He, he looks like his skull is going to burst out his fucking skin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely! I know. He almost, honestly, he almost looks like he's. I almost mistook, mistook him for Spock when I was a kid. Oh, okay, I can see that. There's a there's a sequence in this which I thought was really bold for 1996, because they're in a gay pride parade, and yes, there is a moment of them like kind of like not shocked but kind of surprised and confused about what's going on. But they never show any revulsion, like, oh, they're embarrassed to be there, that they're ashamed to even be talking to these people. That was a bold move in 1996, I think. And I think um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that both the stars were liberals. And, you know, they had more of an open mind to this kind of thing. And they weren't going to, like, like, ew, gay pride. I'm so, you know, like, I'm going to be sick and I have to run away from this. They didn't. And I thought that was oh, a really, of course not. It was a really smart move. But you know how well you were really young. But in '96, that was unheard of. No, absolutely, honestly, it was. I mean, besides like all the films you've watched before, like Birdcage or Two Wong Fu. Yeah. But like actually, like putting, you know, in a, people of that political landscape in that in that parade. Again, yeah, no, it wasn't really something you'd see. Oh, and I just loved how the, the timing of it is like they're in the parade and they're just trying to hide from the. You know, from the Secret Service agents trying to kill them, and yet that one, uh, the one person dressed up as the uh, as Dorothy from Wizard of Oz, though, was just like kind of saying like, "What's wrong? Don't be afraid of who you are. Embrace it." <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, it's, "No, man, we're just trying to live. We don't want to get shot." <laughs> yeah, and, and then of course that character becomes useful later in the movie. But uh, really interesting is the guy playing Dorothy is Jeff Yeager. Not a lot of people know who he is. Um, but he starred in the original V TV series, um, and he was supposed to be the star of 21 Jump Street. But after seeing the pilot, the producers realized he looked too old to be convincing for high school. So they fired him, and they hired Johnny Depp. Oh, damn. Yeah. I mean, yes, he lost his opportunity, but um, besides being an actor, he is a special effects guy. His brother is Kevin Yeager, who did all the Freddy special effects. He created Chucky, stuff like that. So you look up Kevin Yeager and Jeff Yeager. Wow. They're really brilliant artists. Oh, damn. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a really good movie. Yes, it is a Grumpy Old Men knockoff, but I think it's the best of the Grumpy Old Men knockoff. Oh, absolutely. I mean, of course, you have one of the Grumpy Old Men uh in that movie themselves. Yeah, I and, don't. I don't and, see Walter Matthau 
being, I mean, to be realistic, I don't see people voting him in as president. But then I forgot Richard Nixon looked like a looked like a, a fucking bulldog too. So like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> oh god, no, and yeah, dude, none of them. Oh god, none of them. Um, none of them were safe from that uh, Genesis Land of Confusion movie uh, music video. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what is our next film? Uh, next film. Oh gosh, I remember seeing this in film school. Uh, we were discussing uh, mockumentaries and stuff like that. And, of course, Rock, uh, <laughs> Waiting for Guffman had to be one of them uh, when it came to talking about something like Christopher Guest. And from start to finish, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I am going to tell you, I actually forgot to watch this. I thought I had watched all five movies, and I forgot to watch it. I've seen it before, so I'm just going to have to go off memory. I really apologize. Um, what's interesting about this is that every time Christopher Guest does a mockumentary, it's a fucking smash. But then he'll get offers for other comedies that aren't mockumentaries, and then it just crashes and burns. And uh, Except for, I think his first movie, if I remember correctly, was... Okay, so yes, of course, he did Spinal Tap, but he didn't direct it. I'm pretty sure in 89, he did uh, The Big Picture with Kevin Bacon, Martin Short, and Michael McKeon. Oh! So that wasn't a mockumentary, but that wasn't successful financially, but it got a lot of notice. And then I don't think he made anything else until Waiting for Guffman. And Waiting for Guffman was not a big hit. It was found later on video. It got a lot of acclaim, and it was very low budget. So Warner Brothers was cool with it. I think it made like $6 million off a $2 million budget or something like that. And yeah, so, four times the budget. And, and that opened the door for Best in Show, which is what blew him up. And what's after that? Uh, <laughs> the Mighty Wind... And then for your consideration, it's his stumbling block because he went back to narrative. No, 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 I forgot. He did Almost Heroes between Waiting for Guffman and uh, Best in Show. And Almost Heroes is another stumble. So every time he goes towards narrative, that's, that's, uh, that's his, I think, his trip-up point. Yes, of course. And also, I couldn't help but like point him out when going back and rewatching Princess Bride, and I realized, oh, shoot, that's Christopher Guest. He was a six-fingered man. Yeah. Alf Rogan. Um, oh, so man. what I what I find interesting about this, and it's very similar to other uh, mockumentaries that came before and after this. There's one called Smile from 1975, Michael Ritchie, and it's about a beauty pageant in a small town, um, and it stars Bruce Dern. And a lot of the mock- the best mockumentaries are about these really tiny, minute little corners of the world, you know, that, that most people wouldn't care about. Like this one is about just a low, a local play. And they're all just waiting for, you know, this, this big thing, whatever, and it's just not going to happen. And I find that really interesting. He finds these oddball little niches to look at. Oh, yes. Uh, especially with, um, I think it was like actually what turned me into a Parker Posey fan. Well, you know what's funny is I think that his influence it didn't just go into mockumentaries, but you see other documentaries later that have a humorous bent. Have you ever seen King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters? I but, think I remember that being talked about on G4. Yeah, they, there's the editing style, the comedy uh, presentation that very much takes a lot from this this style. And uh, what was the other one? The one with the low budget filmmakers, American um, American movie with the, you know the guy keeps saying Cove, uh, Coven instead of Coven. <laughs> I don't know if you ever seen that. Oh. God, they, they make they make the lowest budget garbage horror films, but they're so enthusiastic. They're so 
delusional that it's going to make them success. David Letterman fell in love with these guys, and he had them on the show a lot. But um, oh my, yeah, so they sound like the horror mo- the horror masters of uh, of Tommy Wiseau. Yes, yes, it, they're very much like very much like the room. <laughs> Yeah, so oh, God. yeah, this is one that like the independent world was talking about a lot, and the video it did very well. I, I think it's one that you really do need to see if you want to see kind of the the new school of mockumentaries. Yes, there's plenty of them before this, but this is where it kind of blew up. Oh my God, that one scene in particular when Christopher Guest is trying to come up with like dances for the musical. <laughs> It's like, what the hell is that? And, like, and he's wearing his pants backwards. Because he's like, at least trying to seem and come off his hip, especially to like a younger audience. And think, also, as far as supporting actors go, yeah. again, Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara, those are the ones who actually, I think, were like the most enthusiastic and actually had some talent. Yeah. Well, I, but this is where he's starting to form his cast, too. Because most of these guys are from SCTV. He was not from SCTV. He was like in his own little improv world, and he knew Michael McKeon and um, Harry Shearer, and they had their little corner. And of course, they were on SNL, but they were on yes. SNL for a year, so it's not like they built a huge team. So it's very interesting. Slowly over the years, you can see them adding to their little repertoire group. Oh, absolutely! I can't can't forget Eugene Levy. Oh my God! <laughs> in particular, because you know. He's, a, he's just a dentist, but he's got, like, a great sense of humor, and he wanted to, you know, show off his talents. But, like, when he came to, like, not wearing his glasses, oh, God, him having to be cross-eyed the whole time, <laughs> <laughs> struggling to see, even though he's their guide in the play, too, no less. And, you know, I have, my degree is in theater, and I've seen this kind of preposterous horse shit out of some of these people. It's like, you're not going to be a star. We're in the middle of Indiana, southern Indiana, a small town, whatever. No one's going to fucking see us. Just go have fun, for God's sakes. Yeah, I know. It's like, yeah, I guess, like, take a big risk, but damn, dude. Have a safety net. Especially around that time. Yeah. But again, yeah, it's for me, uh, and as you mentioned, yeah, like, everybody thought something big was going to happen, and then, boom. Just like with, um... No, not for your consideration. Oh, God, wasn't the one that came out in 2006. That was, yeah, for your consideration. Oh, it was for your consideration. Yeah, yeah. I was wrong. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, just like in for your consideration, like everybody else thought it's like something good was going to happen, like someone was going to get Oscar nominated. It was none of the main characters. It was the one, it was the guy who was brushed aside, or just everything kind of just like fell apart because a particular critic didn't come and see their play. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is the kind of the beginning of seeing uh, David Cross. He had done some movies that were released before this, but uh, that, but this was shot before all of them because it played the film festival circuit. So this is kind of like the beginning of David Cross. Oh yeah, how he's just out there like saying this one particular plot of land, like the, the, the temperature changes, <laughs> thinking it was aliens. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, again, it's just enjoy- it's just really goofy and enjoyable to watch from beginning to end. Wow, are we already to the end of this list? Is like the fastest episode we've ever had. <laughs> well, well, I, well. As far as solo and uh, Spy Heart, I'm glad we got through that pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was only so much we could do with that. <laughs> oh, then we got the one that, look, I begrudgingly still enjoy. I was frustrated when I saw it in theaters, uh, but now I know a lot of what happened with the movie. Uh, Escape from L.A. It makes sense why it came out the way it did. And you, do you know the story about this, the production? 
No, but I am interested as hell because it definitely seemed more satirical than the previous movie. Well, the reason why this one works more is because John Carpenter knows Los Angeles. He knows all. He was born in California. He's lived there his entire life. He knows the ins and outs and all the inside jokes and all the hypocrisy and stuff to spoof that uh, he has an ear for. New York, not so much. I feel like a lot of what he was taking was just a hodgepodge of what he and Nick Castle had heard about New York. No real experience. And, you know, a lot lower budget. But here's the thing is, so I've always been confused why Avco Embassy had all these hit movies and they never made any sequels. Not a single fucking sing, uh, sequel that they made. They would sell the rights off to other companies. Like The Howling, there's like seven of them. But they didn't never, they never oh, yeah. yeah, they never made a single sequel. They never made any of the scanners. And, you know, you think that they would have made another Fog, another Escape from New York. Um, and then, lo and behold, I'm in the laundry room reading the newspaper. And I get to the entertainment section and I see that, hey, they're, they greenlit Escape from uh, Los Angeles. And it's a rushed production. This is in October of 95. It's gonna be wow. released, it's gonna be released August of '96. For a movie like this of this size, that's a rush production. They haven't even started filming at this point. They had the script, they signed everybody, and they allocated a fifty million dollar budget. And here's what yeah. here's what happened. Contractually, they had to pay John Carpenter ten or uh, yeah, Kurt Russell ten. They paid John Carpenter five, and they paid Deborah Hill five. Um, Part of that was for the sequel rights, but it was also for, uh, you know, the producing and writing and whatever. And they get three weeks into production, and then they find out Reicher, the company, which is a TV company, and they decide to go into movies. They oh, wow. So they didn't have a, a big chunk of cash. They overextended themselves by doing Escape from L.A. for $50 million. And they realized they didn't have that kind of money, so they cut the budget by a third. A third out of fifty million dollars when you've already guaranteed twenty of it. I don't know math. What's what's a third of fifty? Uh, a third of fifty. Uh, let's see. Was that a thirty-five million dollar budget then? Uh, yeah. If anything, yeah, it would go down to like around thirty. So you're trying to shoot this big cartoonish visual uh, transformation of Los Angeles with not really big names, but names are going to cost you money. Stacey Keach still costs money. You know, Steve Buscemi, Bruce Campbell, Pam Greer. You know, they're not no names. Uh, 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 Valerie Galena. I'm trying to remember. There's, there's a few others in there. Um, Peter Fonda. Yeah. But so you're... Yeah. So you're spending a lot of money doing that too, and then they find out they don't have any money to finish post production. They only have enough uh, money. They only have enough money to finish production. And that so, explains the special effects. The I special mean, yeah, it was '96, but yeah. still. No, no. When I was in the theaters watching this, and we saw that helicopter, we we're like, "What the fuck?" Oh, or, or no, the worst was the little thing in in the the ship in the water with that shitty shark and it bouncing yeah, the around. Yeah, the submarine. Yeah, I was like, "What the hell?" I was like, "Yeah." So I guess John, they all chipped in some of their money to finish the special effects. Uh, you're, yeah, your your cast and crew shouldn't be finishing. Uh, shouldn't be doing that unless it's their fault for delays in production, which caught you know cost overruns. Exactly. Um, no, that's fully on the studios. Yeah, and you know, and of course, it comes out against the Olympics. And this is back when the Olympics were huge, especially when they're in America. And like I said before, all, all the movies in this time period basically died, except for A Time to Kill. And so, yeah, the trailer the trailer really nailed it on the head. People were excited, but when it came out, it opened at $10 million. 
even with a four-star review from uh, Roger Ebert, which still shocks me to this day. He loved this movie. Um, but I think there is good stuff. Yes, it is a remake of the first movie, essentially. I mean, there's so much similar. It's just, it's like uh, taking a lot of the same plot points. But then I was like, it's just got a quirkier tone. It's got better performances. I fucking love Bruce Campbell as the Surgeon General of yeah. uh, Beverly Hills. That's, that's one of the creepiest goddamn things I've ever seen in a movie. God, I know. Seriously, I'm like, oh, God, I hope they get the hell out of there. Jesus, like they're, they're freaking mutants. The gladiator scene is cartoonish. It is a much sillier version of what you see in the first movie. I just couldn't stop laughing how absurd it was. But he makes that fucking <laughs> shot. That basketball shot at the very end with his one arm thrown at his hard as good, he actually made that. Yeah, I know. It probably took a few takes, but damn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy, though. Yeah, still, again, yeah, uh, the supporting cast and, like, the appearances, as you mentioned, again, could not get enough of Pam Greer. Pam yeah. Greer, just, again, to me, again, just highlighted the scenes with her radiant beauty, my God. So, I look at the special effects now, especially with the color tone and the palette that he was looking for, it looks like he was trying to go for comic book and not photorealistic, especially when he found that, you know, he was hindered so much uh, financially, to just get something that was fun and goofy instead of dark and gritty like the first movie. Right. Well, of course, especially considering, like, the tone he was going for with uh, New York and the decade around, like, how they imagined New York to be. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely made a lot more sense. And Peter Fonda, though, you couldn't help but just like him. I mean, yeah, he was a lot helped him out. Definitely your chill surfer dude. Definitely seemed like he'd be that kind of guy. <laughs> the uh, the silliest part to me, I think, was, was when she's like uh, at the very end when they open fire on him. Shouldn't they have all killed each other? By the way, if they were shooting at a hologram. <laughs> it's, it's oh like, yeah, I know. It's like I'm surprised none of them. Should, I'm surprised none of them did shoot each other. But after like oh. a minute of them shooting that hologram, she goes, "He's a hologram." No shit, stupid. <laughs> She catches on pretty quick, doesn't she? <laughs> or she, or the, the writer thought that we, the audience, was stupid. <laughs> yeah. No, of course. Uh, yeah, that's also kind of a playback to the beginning of the movie when it came to the whole virus thing. Yeah, you oh, know, absolutely. It, it yeah. Ju- All they did was just give him a flu, uh, some flu symptoms, nothing yeah. serious. That makes more sense, to give him the flu that'll slowly kill him instead of little bombs in his neck that'll kill him instantly or whatever. I was like, well, what if something just slows him up? What if something delays him? Yeah, that's dumb. Exactly. I mean, in the first movie, yeah, that that makes more sense. That was more incentive for uh, Pliskin to actually get the job done. Yeah. But in the second movie, yeah, it was just a it was just a trick. It's weird like, that people think that John Carpenter is conservative, and you know, Kurt Russell. They made a very liberal movie. You know, they they're mocking conservative attitudes and ideas the whole time. I mean, there's exactly. a little there's a little bit of that Demolition Man flavor in it too, so you can kind of see. Oh, there is a little bit of liberal joking, like no red meat, no smoking, or whatever, but. Yeah, it's 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 a spoof of you know the conservative behavior that was rising in the '90s. Same thing with uh, "They Live," which was a spoof of like Reaganomics, you know, yuppies. And capitalism, uh, yes. But I love the ending, the balls for that ending for him to go. You know what? Fuck this. We're starting over. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely was here for the ending. I'm like, yeah, that's definitely what Snake Plissken would do. Yeah. Especially after the first one, uh, what getting that tape? Oh yeah, yeah, with yeah. Those and then just like switching out the tapes and then destroying it as he walked away. So the uh, there was a planned th- part three called Escape Escape to Planet Earth or something like that. And um, 
or escape from Earth, and they said that the script got rewritten as Ghost of Mars. I don't know if that's real, because there was never supernatural elements in the Snake Plissken world. There's weird shit, but it's all reality. So. Yeah, it's all... St- yeah, no, it's definitely grounded and more um, practical than yeah. Ghost of Mars. I would like to see an R-rated animated movie. I know it'll go straight to video or streaming or whatever, but, you know, do one for, like, $10 million. Have... Kurt Russell voice Snake one more time and have John Carpenter do the music. Don't remake the movie. Don't remake Escape from New York like they said they are. Just just go do that third final story. I mean, the comic right. book the comic book is pretty good. I, I saw. Yes. Have you ever seen the gameplay from the Chronicles of Snake Plissken or something like that? For uh, I think it was supposed to be for the Nintendo sixty four and PlayStation one. No, I never even knew that existed. There is a playthrough on um, YouTube where it was supposed to come out a couple years. They assumed that Escape from L.A. was going to be a hit and they would be ready for part three. So the video game was supposed to be a bridge between the movies. And in 90, oh, wow. Yeah, so in 99, they were working on it. But by the end of 99, they saw the test demo, whatever, and they, they shut it down. They said Snake Plissken wasn't a popular enough franchise to finish doing the game. But you see like 10 minutes of gameplay they used as a demo that was dumped. Uh, someone found it like in an archive whatever and they dumped it on YouTube. It, it looks pretty wow. good actually. It's kind of like a, uh, like a third person shooter uh, puzzle game kind of thing. It's like Tomb Raider meets, uh, what's that, Metal Gear Solid kind of thing. Wow. Oh, okay. No, I definitely would have had fun with that. Yeah, I'll try to find the clip and send it to you. But, um... Yeah, I still think this is worthy. and it's, it's really a compromised movie. I heard someone say, oh, he did the special effects bad on purpose because he's a rebel. No, dude. To, no. To say that... <laughs> yeah, to say that to John Carpenter... Did you see him at the convention last summer where they're like, what the fuck happened with Escape from LA? And he goes, he shit, flipped him off, whatever, and left. <laughs> Good. It's like, I can't blame him. It's like, dude, if anything, I would have just said, like, dude, the way the production handled Escape from LA and rushed everything... It just fucks that all. That it's just so fucked that everything just landed on him. It's like, yeah, no, yeah. it's not his fault. Ugh. Yeah, I think it kind of soured him. If, if vampires hadn't done okay, I think he would have left immediately. Because uh, I mean, he did leave pretty much soon after that. He's a guy who doesn't look like he tolerates studio bullshit very well. I don't blame him, especially with what they're doing now. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and yeah, he hasn't made a movie in forever. And it's just kind of a shame. The last one he did was The Ward, which is fine. But it's not a John Carpenter movie. Right. I mean, again, no, he's definitely like one of the best directors. Actually, I find he's definitely one of like one of the best horror directors. And uh, just directors in general. Yeah, I mean, he, his sci-fi doesn't get talked about much, but he's done a lot of sci-fi as well as horror. Yes, of course. And then, of course, there was something fantasy like, um, oh, gosh, why am I blanking? Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. How can I do that? I mean, it's, and that's it's borderline. I think people, when you put it on the shelf, you're going to put Big Trouble in Little China and sci-fi. People love to lump fantasy and sci-fi together. It's fine, I guess. Yeah, I know, for sure. All right, so I mean, that... I, oh, go ahead, sorry. Well, I mean, of course, those two could uh, blend so well together, uh, especially from uh, the sci-fi standpoint, like, you know, the advancement in technology... And, of course, just, like, kind of just having fun with it and not having to have a explanation for anything. That's where I feel like the f- uh, fantasy elements do come in better. I wish the last Indiana Jones hadn't done bad. 
And I wish there was more of these legacy sequels because Old Man Snake would be kind of cool too. With the technology now, you could just put Kurt Russell back in his old role, or whatever, as you know, a guy at the edge of society now. You know, it's completely collapsed worldwide. And, you know, just if you have to use some killer stunts, just digitally plaster his face on someone else because he said he wasn't going to do any more action movies after he shattered his foot on Soldier. Right. No, I don't blame him. But uh, as far as it goes for Indiana Jones, it's like, yeah, it's just bad timing, you know, because there's already so much in the uh, movie market that month anyway. Yeah, it was a glut. It's so weird. I I, Now, all of a sudden, the box office is taking off like it should have two months ago. Yeah, but you just release so much every weekend. It's like, shit. Yeah, and if you look at the history of stuff, that happens every summer. People think, oh, the summer of 84 was loaded to the gills with hit after hit after hit. No, not really. Um, some of these movies you think were released in the summer weren't. Uh, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street wasn't. Star Trek Four wasn't. You know, um, you know, and other movies like that or whatever they released other time of the year. And uh, a lot of those stuff that we consider classics, like Streets of Fire, it didn't do well. It's just you know in our heads because it was on HBO a million times, and then we all rented it on video that it, everything was a hit. No, it was basically like Beverly Hills Cop. People think it's summer of '84. No, that was Christmas of '84. That's more of an 85 movie, yeah. So basically, the whole summer was ruled by Karate Kid, uh, uh, Gremlins, and Ghostbusters. That's really it. Everything else just did okay or not, you know? Yeah, those are the ones that had the biggest legacies for sure. Yeah. But again, yeah, uh, it is a shame. I don't hate Escape from LA. I actually do like it. It's uh, just, it's a compromised vision, and that's what sucks. I wish someone would just give him, now special effects are so dirt cheap, I bet you could kickstart to finish the movie for a million or two. Oh, definitely. As long as you give the visual effects team the right uh, right amount of time. Yeah. Yeah, to actually complete and get some good quality uh, I got it. I got it. He loves USC. John Carpenter graduated from USC. Why not let their kids in the film program learning special effects do it and, and to get like credit for college? No, for sure. That's that's a good idea to do it on the cheap, and, and it's got to look better than the way it does. Holy shit, it's so plasticky and weird and video game. It's like you know Xbox, like original Xbox graphics. Wow. Yeah. All right, <laughs> I think uh, we've managed really so a lot. <laughs> All right, Jacob, we got one more for '96 coming up after this, and then we're on to '97. Charge before we got to get yes. it all. We all we have to get it all done before the big shopping season starts because he gets drowned in work. Um, oh yes. All right, uh, send us out. All right, everybody. Namaste and good luck. Be excellent to each other. And party on, dude.